My text this morning is in Revelation chapter 6, but before we get to my text, I just want to remind you again and reassure you again of a couple of things from Revelation 1. So, look first at Revelation 1, and we see in Revelation 1 a couple of principles that guide us. I am... uh, going over this for now the third time, I think, because I know that the interpretation that I'm giving of the book of Revelation is new to many of you. You have uh, probably heard all of your life that most of the book of Revelation is going to be fulfilled in the future, and I am maintaining that most of the book of Revelation was fulfilled by the year 70 AD in the first century. And so, Uh, A couple of the things that have driven me to that are here in Revelation 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show, note that word show, show to his servants the things that must soon soon take place. There actually are two. Two of the guiding principles for interpreting the book of Revelation are right here at the very front door. One is that Most of this truth is revealed through showing. It is through visions. It is through representational things. The word means to to, uh, demonstrate by illustration. So, he gave us this to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then that it must soon take place is the second guiding principle. So, If we can find in history the evidence that the predictions made in the book of Revelation were fulfilled soon, then we should latch hold of that because that's what is said here. It must soon take place. And then at the end of verse 3, Revelation 1-3, it tells us that the time is near. So two, two ways of describing soon and near, and both of these words are used again in the last chapter of Revelation. Now, I haven't said much about the method of, of uh, teaching, which is through showing, through giving representational pictures. Uh, so, the gist of that is that most of the pictures that are given in the book of Revelation are not to be taken literally, rather they are pictures that represent truths. Today in Revelation chapter 6, and you can go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 6, we're going to encounter uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And uh, some people would say, well, this is literally, there's going to be some people coming on the scene, and they're literally going to be riding a white horse and a red horse and a black horse and a pale horse, literally going to happen. But uh, I don't think there's anybody who really takes all of the book of Revelation literally. So, for example, is Jesus literally a lamb? Well, no, he's figuratively a lamb. He's standing between the throne and among the elders, and, and uh, he's standing there as a lamb having been slain. Does Jesus literally have seven horns on his head and seven eyes? No, he doesn't literally have that. These are 
These are representations that he has great power. He has great uh, intelligence, wisdom. He, he sees all. And, uh, and so we, you can go through the book of Revelation. And, and there, there are times when the, uh, the author of Revelation, who is Jesus, the author of Revelation, gives interpretations as to what these things mean. So it won't be too long until we encounter a beast with seven heads and ten horns. Is it literally a beast with seven heads and ten horns? Well, the author of Revelation says, no, the seven heads represent two things. They represent seven mountains, and they also represent seven kings. And the ten horns represent ten kings. And so throughout the book of Revelation, we have these pictures that represent things. One of my favorite children's books is uh, a, a telling of the story of Noah's Ark. It's written by a man whose first name is Peter, and his last name is spelled S-P-I-E-R. And I don't know if that's Spear or Spire. But uh, any of you parents know this book, the, the Noah's Ark by Peter Spear? You should get it. If you have little children uh, that love to be read to, you should get this. Although you won't be reading the book. It's all pictures, all, all very extraordinarily well-drawn pictures. And it's just so much fun to have a little child sitting on your lap and pointing to the various pictures and just telling the story of Noah's Ark. But it's not told in words. Instead, it's told in pictures. Well, the book of Revelation is written in words, but it's words that describe pictures. And so we're supposed to be asking ourselves, what do these various pictures mean? And that's what we're going to do today. Uh, you may recall from two weeks ago, I think it was, when I preached from Revelation 5, uh, that Jesus takes the scroll and instead of just imagining Jesus walking and taking a piece of paper, out, out of God's hands, we ask, what does this scroll represent? And what the scroll represents is the administration of God's kingdom, especially justice. Administrating justice in God's kingdom. And so as he opens the various seals, and we will see him today opening six of the seven seals, then we'll see that there are, in five of the six cases... There are representations of God's justice, retributive justice, that is about to be poured out on the city of Jerusalem. And uh, so that scroll is the administration of God's justice in God's kingdom. And so now let's turn our attention to Revelation chapter 6, and we see Jesus begin to open the seals of the scroll. By the way... Uh, the, before he opens the seventh seal, we don't get to the seventh seal until chapter 8, there is a very important interruption in chapter 7. The very important interruption uh, deals with the concern that some people might have of, well, when God is pouring out all of this wrath against Jerusalem, and uh, the, the Jerusalem has been the place where God has put his name, it has been the place where he instructed his people to go for centuries as God is pouring out his wrath on Jerusalem. Does, is, is God finished with the Jews? 
Is God finished with the Jews? Is God now uh, finished saving people? And the answer that is given in chapter 7 is, no, there are people who are sealed by the Lord. The brief answer to the question, is God finished with the Jews, is no, God is not finished with the Jews. God still is going to be saving Jews through faith in Jesus Christ. But he's not going to be saving them any other way. And so the promises that are made to physical Israel are promises that are made when they will turn from their sin, repenting, and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so chapter 7 deals with the question, in the midst of all of this carnage that God is judicially pouring out on Jerusalem, are there Jews who are saved? And the answer is, yes, there are. And not just Jews, but people from every tribe and people and nation and language. And then he opens the seventh seal. But the seventh seal is really a transitional seal that leads into the seven trumpets. As I've already told you, the number seven figures prominently in the book of Revelation. There are letters to seven churches. Now we're into, today we'll see the opening of the seven seals, although the seventh one is a transitional one, which leads to the blowing of seven trumpets. And then we have the introduction of seven mysterious characters. The woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet is the first one, and the man-child that she bears, and so on. There are seven mysterious characters, and then that leads to seven bowls of wrath that are poured out, and that leads us up to the concluding chapters of the book of Revelation. But today, we're looking at the seven seals, and so let's plunge right in. Chapter 6 and verse 1, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And when he says, come, he is not telling John, come and see. That and see that uh, appears in some translations is really an addition. He's talking to the horse, and, and so he looks, John says, I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So here are, here's the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Who is this first rider? Well, notice that he is riding on a white horse, and the white horse is an, the white color is an emblem of justice, and it is also an emblem of victory. And so this rider is coming out in justice and in victory. But who is it? Well, I'm not exactly sure. I think that it's very likely that this represents Jesus. You say, well, wait a minute, Jesus is opening the seals. That's right. But when he's opening the seals, he is showing that he is going to, <clears throat> he is going to come in judgment on the nation of Israel and specifically on the city of Jerusalem, that he is the one who is going to do it. Uh, the fact that he's wearing a crown uh, strengthens the possibility that this is Jesus riding the white horse coming in judgment. Although, there is another historical figure that it fits very well, and this is the Roman general Vespasian. Uh, Vespasian was, as I said, the Roman general who led the uh, Roman forces into Palestine, who, who was revolting, the, the Jews were revolting against Rome, and so that's why the uh, Roman forces come, and for about three and a half years, 
the uh, the war goes on between the Jews and uh, and the Roman forces under Vespasian at first, and then later on under Vespasian's son, whose name was Titus. When Vespasian first came into the uh, the northern part of Israel, he he conquered a city named Jatapata. You should say that just for the fun of it, Jatapata. So he conquers a city named Jatapata, and the general over the city of Jatapata was a man whose name was later changed to Josephus, and uh, Flavius Josephus. He had a very Jewish name because he was a Jewish man, and uh, he became a translator for Vespasian. Vespasian uh, spared his life, and uh, Josephus became... uh, a very famous historian. Now, the Jews considered him a traitor because he went over to the Romans, but the Romans valued his services, and Josephus uh, began writing the history of the war with the Jews. He started in about 75 AD, but he was an eyewitness. He, he, he was there during the time that the Romans were laying siege to uh, the city of Jerusalem, and uh, I have begun reading I have not finished, but reading Josephus's book on the war, the Jewish wars, and uh, it is, it's, it's striking. It's just amazing uh, with the perspective on Revelation that I've come to embrace to see how these things were just so literally fulfilled in what happened in the first century when the Romans uh, besieged Jerusalem. But one of the things that helped Josephus to gain uh, favor with Vespasian was that he interpreted a prophecy in Vespasian's favor. He said, one day you will be the emperor of Rome. And that, in fact, happened. Vespasian did. After he had uh, laid waste the land of Israel, he did go back to Rome, and he was, he was crowned the emperor of Rome. And so I think that there's a fairly good case that this could be Vespasian riding on the white horse. So I don't think it makes all that much difference whether you say that it's Jesus, because if if it's not Jesus, then Jesus is using Vespasian on the white horse to come out and conquer. And that is, as you can see, what he is coming out to do. It says in verse 2, its rider had a bow. This is uh, an instrument of war that helps you to kill people far away. The next rider will have a sword. And some people say, well, when they first entered, they, they entered from the north. They were far away from Jerusalem. And so the rider on the white horse has an, an instrument for killing people far away. But he has a crown. So whether it's Jesus or whether it is Vespasian, he comes out conquering and to conquer. That's the first horse. The uh, second horse is described in verse 3, 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Now, there is a word that uh, is translated earth here that needs to be translated a different way. Uh, The word that is translated earth is, uh, it would be pronounced gay, in English. Uh, there are a few people in here who have studied Greek, so it's gamma, eta, but it, so just the two letters. Uh, but in English, we would pronounce it gay. 
And it gives word to our word uh, geology or, or geology, I meant to say, or geography. It also gives word, it gives rise to our word George. So the G-E means land and org means worker. So George means land worker. It's a name for a farmer. So if, if your name is George, then it's just a Greek combination that means farmer. And uh, so the word here, uh, throughout the book of Revelation, it nearly always needs to be translated land rather than earth. Because if he's taking peace from the earth, then that means, you know, we think of that as the whole world, everything that we think of when we think of the globe. But if, in fact, it is a local judgment, then it makes more sense that he is permitted to take peace from the land. And uh, e- easily confirmed that either one, of those, either one of those words translates the Greek word gay. So he comes out and uh, he's riding a red horse. Now I said that the white horse represents justice and represents uh, victory. And almost anyone who just thinks about it could figure out what the word red refers to, what the color red refers to. The thing that you think of is it's, it's bloody, especially since this guy has a sword. And its rider was permitted to take peace from the land so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. This is not the first time in the history of God's judgment on a people that he causes them to slay one another. So you might think of Gideon and his encounter with the Midianites when he broke the pitchers and blew the trumpet Uh, shouting out a sword for the Lord and Gideon that the Midianites began slaying one another. And uh, there have been other times when God causes his enemies to slay one another. This is one of those instances. And uh, Josephus tells very in great detail how that the Jews killed more Jews than the Romans did. And so in just a section of the wars that I read yesterday... Uh, when, uh, when the Romans came into the, uh, the land of Israel and they defeated uh, various cities in the north, and some of those people fled into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a very well-fortified city on a hill, very thick wall, extremely hard to uh, penetrate the wall. And so some of these Jews who, who were refugees fled and came into Jerusalem And many of them were um, troublemakers. So there was already a sect in Jerusalem called the Zealots. One of Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealot, was part of this party. And the Zealots were uh, people who were extremely strong about Jewish nationality and wanted to fight the Romans and do things against the Romans. And so when these people escaped from the north and came into Jerusalem, they got into cahoots with uh, the zealots, and they, they took over the temple, and they killed a number of the leading people in Jerusalem. So these are Jews killing other Jews. Well, a lot of the people in Jerusalem didn't like that, and so the, the zealots and those who were refugees shut themselves up and locked themselves in the temple. But they got word out to the Idumeans You probably have a map in the back of your Bible that will show the area of Idumea. They're Jewish people. They live just south of Jerusalem in Idumea. 
And uh, they, the, these people who had shut themselves up in the temple sent word down to Idumea, and the Idumeans sent an army against Jerusalem. Now, these are Jews fighting against Jews. And uh, the story is very long and involved, but in one night, the Idumeans broke into the city and killed 8,500 Jews in one night. And so, <clears throat> this red horse of war comes into the land and people slay one another. By the way, I think that we have a very sad instance of this going on today. And no, I'm not talking about what's happening in Europe. I'm talking about what's happening in abortion clinics. Has it ever occurred to you that almost exclusively the people who are killing their babies in abortion clinics are the enemies of God? I mean, it's Christians who are standing up and saying, don't do that. Don't kill your babies. It's Christians who are leading the fight to say, let's make Roe v. Wade. Let's overturn it. And that's what Christians should be doing. But has it ever occurred to you that it is almost entirely the enemies of God who are killing their babies? It's very sad, but it is true. In this case, it is also very sad that more lives, more Jewish lives were killed by Jews in the siege of Jerusalem than were killed by the Romans. And so this writer was given permission to uh, turn people so that they would slay one another. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Okay, white represents uh, justice, victory. Red represents the bloodshed of war. What does black represent? Black represents famine. So black represents famine. And this is further strengthened by the fact that the writer has in his hands a pair of scales. The pair, people measure out their food under conditions of starvation. When there's plenty of food, you don't have to measure how much you're going to eat. And so then there's a voice that comes from the midst of the four living creatures which confirms this. A quart of wheat, so you just think of a mason jar costs a denarius. Now, in that day, a denarius was how much money a working person would earn in one day. And so, you've got to work one whole day to get one quart of wheat. Well, what if you've got to feed a family? You can't afford wheat. Then you can use your one day's wages to buy three quarts of barley, and you can feed, you can feed a family. If it's not too big, on three quarts of barley. And Josephus describes the terrible, terrible conditions of famine. If anyone was found out to have food, then there were roving bands of rogues and bandits who would go and attack that house. And he even describes an instance of cannibalism going on when a woman roasted her baby child and ate him. So very, very terrible 
very terrible judgment coming down on Jerusalem because of their rejection of the Lord. Now in verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold... Oh, you know, I forgot to explain something. What about that part, do not harm the oil and the wine? Well, the, the word that is translated do not harm says, like, do no wrong, do no injustice to the oil and the wine. It could mean don't waste it, or it could mean don't use the sacred oil and wine that has been devoted to the service of the Lord in a profane way. But Josephus records that when, when these rogues got control of the temple, they did, in fact, uh, misuse the oil and the wine that was, that was stored there. Now, the, the fourth seal, he opens the fourth seal, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. The word that is translated pale is interesting. We get our word uh, chlorophyll from it, so that C-H-L-O-R or C-L-O-R, it is, uh, it's a pale color, but it's pale green. Now, I don't want to be too gross, but when a wound gets infected... There's often a pale green color that is with it. And I think that's what is supposed to be represented here. It is the ills that infect a war-torn land. And so out comes this pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. Remember, that should be translated land. They were given authority over a fourth of the land to kill with sword and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. And so when war and famine come into a country, there are all of these attendant evils that go along with it. So these are the four horsemen who ride into Israel. Now beginning in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, we see the promise of pending justice for martyrs. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. These martyrs are seen under the altar. That is the place where the blood of sacrifices was poured. And so John sees that these, these people who have stood up for the word of God and who have told what they know and believe about Jesus, they were killed for that and their blood has been, their souls are under the altar like the blood of sacrifices. They cry out, O sovereign Lord, Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth or those who dwell on the land? And uh, so all, Jesus had predicted to his disciples, the time is coming that when they will kill you, anyone who kills you will think that he's offering us a, a service to God. Jesus also said the blood of all of the prophets that have been slain from Abel at Genesis opening chapters of Genesis, all the way to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed in the courtyard temple. Uh, Zechariah is the last martyr mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. 
And as I have told you before, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the, uh, the books of the Bible are arranged differently so that in the Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. They have all of the prophets and so on that we have, but it's just arranged so that Second Chronicles comes at the end. It describes the destruction of Jerusalem by, uh, by, the, by the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and, and so on. And uh, so when Jesus says, on you is going to come all the blood shed from Abel all the way to Zechariah, he's saying, from the first to the very last. Now, I have a number of verses of Scripture that I'm going to have you turn to. And uh, I did not give these to Elizabeth ahead of time because I think it would be beneficial if you can find them to find them in your Bible. And the first one is in Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. So if you are unfamiliar with your Bible and you can't find things very quickly, then you might listen carefully or even write these things down so that you can find them later. But Luke chapter 18, I'll try to give you time to... uh, Turn to these various passages of Scripture because I think it's very important that you see them in the Bible. So remember, we're exploring the fifth seal when the blood, when the martyrs cry out, O sovereign Lord, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Let's read what it says in Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, I have historically interpreted this to say it's important that we continue in prayer, asking the Lord for the things that we need. But notice that the thing that Jesus applies it to is the elect who are crying out for justice. And then he applies it to the time when he comes. And I have always thought that he is saying when he comes back at the end of time, which I believe he is going to do, there will be perhaps such a time of apostasy that there will just be very few Christians. Will he even find faith on the earth at all? But now I think that what Jesus is referring to here is that when he comes in judgment on Jerusalem, will there be any Jews who are faithful? Will there be Jews who are following him? The answer is yes, but it wasn't enough to stave off the judgment that he predicted. And so uh, these martyrs that we see in Revelation chapter 6 are like this woman who is crying out for justice day and night. The point of the Lord's story is, if even an unjust judge eventually gives in to the repeated cries for justice, then will not the God of the earth who does right, will he not also give justice when his elect cry out to him for vengeance? Now turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. And uh, here 
I think we will find uh, something like a parallel passage of Scripture that very likely has puzzled you your whole life. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, We really need to read all uh, the first uh, five verses as well. But let's just dive in at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. I'm sure that's always, you've always wondered that. When was the gospel preached to those who are dead? Well, the word gospel here is the word that is usually translated gospel. It just means good word or good message. You've probably heard that the gospel is called good news. It has the, the prefix eu, which means good, like euphoria. So it has the prefix eu, and then angelon, which means message. So good message. It can, of course, be a comforting message, and I think that's how it should be translated here. This is why a comforting message was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Well, we don't have any instance in the Bible of, the, of, of anybody preaching to dead people except in Revelation chapter 6. And in Revelation chapter 6, when those who have been judged by men cry out for vengeance, then God gives them a good word. He gives them a comforting word. Can be translated gospel, but it also can be translated good word or comforting word. So he gives them this good word and he tells them, now we're back in Revelation chapter 6, and, and he tells them, rest a little longer until the full, he, they give them a white robe, which means that they have the life of the Spirit. Rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so the disciples continued to be killed. Christians continued to be killed. At this time, just before the, the uh, destruction of Rome, Nero had joined in with the persecution against Christians. But up until that time, it was primarily the Jews who were killing the Jewish Christians. They're told to wait just a little longer. Now I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. And see what the Lord Jesus says that's very closely related to this. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 through, 20, 29 through 36. So Matthew 23, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. He, look, he's talking to people who are, he can hear him with their ears. You will, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. 
so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. And then note verse 36. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So you are going to kill the prophets and witnesses, the Christian prophets and witnesses that I send to you. You're going to kill them but then you are going to be killed. And the rest of the chapter talks about that. All right, back in Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 6, we have an especially puzzling section to encounter. Now, if it's, if it's occurring to you that you don't like the way the book of Revelation is written, you're going to have to take that up with somebody else. Uh, Because, you know, it wasn't even John who wrote the book of Revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. So apparently Jesus likes this way of communicating. He made the last book of the Bible this way. So we just might as well not fuss about it and get used to it. But what we have coming up next is another picture, and it is a picture of a decreation of a world. Look at verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Now you say, okay, preacher, what do you say about that? Did that happen in the first century? And the answer is yes. You say, now I know you've lost your marbles. So uh, let's just, let's just hold off for a minute on whether or not I've lost my marbles. Uh, Let's, what I'm maintaining here is that what is being described here is the decreation of a world. It's not the end of time, but it is the decreation of the world that was the world of the first covenant, the old covenant, the covenant with Israel, that this world is being destroyed. And that the sun and the moon and the stars represent the various heads and leaders who were part of this. And uh, since, since this is such a controversial assertion, I want to, you to turn with me to several passages in the, Old script, in the Old Testament which show that God uses this kind of language <clears throat> to talk about severe judgment. First of all, turn to Isaiah chapter 13 verses 9 and 10. Isaiah chapter 13, we're going to focus on verses 9 and 10, but I'll just point out that in verse 1, this is an oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So this is about Babylon, a country that has long ago received the judgment that is predicted here. And uh, here's what it says in verses 9 and 10, predicting this judgment on Babylon. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. 
For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Now this is a passage of scripture that has been fulfilled long long ago. But it describes the judgment upon Babylon as being the sun, moon, and stars being darkened. Now turn over a few pages to Isaiah chapter 34. And here we see a a similar description of judgment upon Edom, another country that is no longer in existence. In Isaiah chapter 34, notice verses 4 and 5. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. You may notice that's exactly what is quoted in Revelation 6. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Again, exactly in Revelation 6. And then you can see in verse 5 that this is a a pronouncement not at the end of the world, but against a country that no longer exists. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Egypt, on Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Now turn to uh, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 32. We again see this kind of decreation language used when there's a, an overthrow of a government. Ezekiel chapter 32, verses 7 and 8. So you can see in verse 2 that this is a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And this is part of that. And it says in verses 7 and 8, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. And then fourthly, finally for my illustrative purposes, that decreation, turning your Bibles to the book of Joel. That's a little harder to find. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel is the way it goes. So Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel... And in the book of Joel, we find this prediction made concerning Israel. You may recognize this as being a passage of Scripture that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and following. Joel two twenty-eight. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And so the Lord specifically talking about his judgment upon Israel and upon Jerusalem and uses this language of decreation. 
Jesus used, so I've shown you four Old Testament passages, but now let me show you that Jesus used this same decreation language in talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Look, first of all, in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And You might say, yeah, but that's talking about the end of time. Look at verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so he's not talking about the consummation of the ages. He's talking about the consummation of the age with Israel. And then once more, look in Luke chapter 23. This is uh, when we find Jesus on, on the way to be crucified. And there are a group of women who are following after him, crying. And in Luke 23, um, look at verse 20. Luke 23, we'll start with verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now notice Jesus is saying this to the women who are following him right then. And he says, weep for yourselves and for your children. The days are coming. That's another indication that this is not 2,000 years in the future. This is something that you are going to have to deal with. Weep for yourselves. And weep for your children. It's going to be so bad, he says, that people are going to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. And so back in Revelation chapter 6, that's what we find after Jesus has opened this sixth seal. Then the kings of the, so verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones, remember earth should be translated land. Then the kings of the land and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. And so uh, all of this is pronounced in judgment upon the land of Jerusalem, the the, the city of Jerusalem, the land of Israel. It hasn't come yet when this is being written, but the time is coming that the Lord would predict. Let me conclude with giving you three brief lessons from this. First of all, God knows how to judge. God knows how to judge nations. God knows how to judge people. 
Secondly, do not make God's patience ground for presumption. The Lord warned years in advance, this is coming. And even the book of Revelation is a final warning issued to the people of Jerusalem. But they didn't repent. Don't make the same mistake. Don't make God's patience ground for presumption. And then finally, flee from the wrath to come. The Lord Jesus told people in his day, when you see these things happening, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, then get out of town. Flee to the mountains. And many of the Christians did, and many Christians were spared the terrible things that happened in Jerusalem because they, they listened to the Lord and they obeyed the Lord. Well, there, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed long ago, but there is another conflagration coming, the end of this world. And be ready for that. Pay heed now to the warnings that are given to you and take advantage of the day of grace that is afforded to you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.